Any changes in the last year? I wouldn't know what to talk about. Now the great debate wages on about Peggy Olson's charmed career. I want you to imagine when you talk about Mr. Draper that he's standing right behind you. Nothing good ever started with that sentence. Stop writing for other writers. It's this big club they're all in together. I would describe it as delightfully disappointing. Sex sells. Says who? Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Each week, we take a close look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015, gearing our conversation around the conversation. The show is having about gender, the patriarchy, and belts that cost only two fifty-five. dollars All right, I have two people here with me, and first one here, um, Will Ashen. You were crying in the, the podcast break room, which I have strictly mm. forbidden, but uh, yeah. I have to see you anyway. Oh, I'm a rule breaker, you know. I like to <laughs> challenge my authority whenever I can, and however I can. And uh, there, there is Mike walking down the stairs to some hauntingly sexy music, and uh, I, would, I'll, I would play it for you all right now, but, you know, I'm, I'm getting turned on. It's uh, Mike Overhaul. So now he's doing the twist again, like we did last summer. Hey, let me tell you, these these moves are the only reason I can be on this podcast is that no one can see it. And you all know me. I'm John Agurney, and my personality is also a catastrophe. So, boys, we did it. We finished season one of Mad Men, and now we're we're going into the second season. We we hit a milestone. It's not it's not easy doing a whole season of recapping a TV show, but you know what? It's not that hard either. We we just did it. Yeah, and to celebrate, we're all hungover. That's right. We're all a bit hungover doing this on a Saturday morning. Perfect timing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you who isn't hungover. The uh, the cast and crew of Sterling Cooper, because this episode is very, uh, this is a very like young and vivacious episode of the show. We have a big time jump, right? We have a lot of uh, commentary here about being youthful and, um, you know, rejecting sort of uh, what's come before. I kind of like how the, sh- the episode, in fact, this is for those who think young, kind of has that attitude of like, you know what? Forget season one. We're going to jump 15 months to February 1962. Did you guys, uh, I-, I am curious, like, did you guys know that it was a big time jump? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking for you, Michael, like when you were first watching the show, but were you expecting that or like, because I could see people watching and being like, okay, so it's Valentine's Day. It's been a couple of months since uh season one but no it's been over a year yeah i um i definitely didn't expect it when i when i was watching it i do think it's like the exact right thing to do because i feel like they wrapped up season one so perfectly with all their storylines and they gave just enough to have you be curious about what's going to happen in the in the next seasons and i love that with this time jump it allows those little seeds that they planted to have bloomed off screen and now it's just like you kind of felt um, in uh, the first episode of the first season. You're trying to you're trying to catch up and understand what are the motivations of these characters. Um, you know what's the power dynamics? I guess essentially in the office, it's it feels brand new. Yeah, Matthew Weiner has said that when they were doing season two, he faced a bit of a, a challenge because he f- he had told his story in season one. You know, he wrote it like he wouldn't get a season two. And I think that, you know, we talked about that when we were discussing the wheel, that it does feel like an episode that kind of ties up all its loose ends. It's a standalone with series potential, basically. And 
then he went into season two and being like, well, if we're going to do something different, if we're going to start a new story, then it should be about, you know, Don kind of, you know, being faced with the young generation and things changing because that ties into the show itself. It's time for some things to really change and impact the characters generationally. And that's, that's what we're seeing kicking off here. But uh, what about you? Will? did you, uh, you know, I know you, we've discussed this many times that you were getting pretty close to Mad Men material you've never seen before, but this is, this is one of the last couple, right? I believe this is the last full episode I haven't seen. And maybe I, I don't know. I didn't really have a, any clear recollection of this episode. So if I had seen it in full, it, it did not stick with me in my memory. So it, it basically felt like I was watching again, a new, ah. so yeah. So then what, into, what was your take then? Since you since it was fresh for you, how did you respond to it? I mean, it's definitely so I could definitely tell that the production values seem to have gone up. Um, not to the oh, point yeah. where it's just like night and day, but you can kind of tell that like AMC was a little bit uh, more willing to put an extra zero or two in their in their uh, yeah. budget for the show. Now we're in um, the Savoy Hotel, yeah. you know, one of the biggest, fanciest hotels in New York City. Yeah, exactly. And it just has a more kind of cinematic quality to it. Not that the first season didn't, but, you know, you can kind of see a little bit more of that cinematic influence that I'm sure uh, is going to be uh, only more apparent in the seasons to come, uh, as well as this season, I'm sure. Yeah, but, totally. Uh, yeah. I mean, thematically, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I if I had only, I guess, one complaint is that, like, they really hammer home that, you know, Don is feeling old and out of date like it's not uh it's not a particularly subtle thing in this episode but you know it makes sense given you know where we are and what we're trying to say with this season at least so far and there's a lot of other things that uh are discussed i think are a lot of fun yeah. and sad yeah, this, this, this is a fun episode <laughs> <laughs> this is a fun one and i think you know i do think that there to what you're saying it's like yeah there is a bit of like on the nose thematic stuff going on but i think in typical Mad Men fashion there's also some like nuance like underneath it too that uh, that's that's what gets me hooked. But real quick, we'll say uh, so. This is another episode written by Matthew Weiner, so he's back with like the lead credit, and uh, and then we also have Tim Hunter coming back as director. Uh, last season, Tim Hunter directed New Amsterdam and Red in the Face and Long Weekend and Indian Summer. So he's he's definitely one of the mainstays uh, in terms of directors. And Weiner is back. I mean, he he wrote. A bunch of episodes last season because um, it's Matthew Weiner. I'll, I'll tell you guys, I watched uh, one of the like establishing Mad Men like sort of special features on the DVDs, and I think I think when we were talking about the show last season, I I might have like downplayed a little bit of like how involved the writers' room is because I was like, you know, when we talk about like who gets the credits of the screenplays, I think sometimes it can get lost that like they're all in the room together, like you know, not for every single episode, but. You know, even though that if they're not like getting the exact like screenplay credit, a lot of these writers that we've been discussing, like Bridget Bedard, Tom Palmer, uh, Lisa Albert, uh, a lot of these folks, Chris Robinzano, they're kind of coming in and out of this writer's room, even for episodes they, they aren't credited on it, is my understanding. So I wanted to shout that out real quick. But okay, back and to I the episode. I do think that, I was, actually, yeah. to that point, John. I do think it's really important that that's happening, especially that, you know, in the last season and, and right now, because it doesn't, it, you know, having watched the full series, it still doesn't exactly feel like, besides maybe Don Draper and Peggy, I'll say, that people like really understand their character. It, you know, it doesn't feel like it's as easy for them to tap into it and understand 
how they're going to react in a situation. It feels like most of the show is still figuring that out. And that's why you have to have all those writers like present at that same time to help them figure it out. No, I think that's totally spot on. You know, it, I think it's one of the reasons why uh, Mad Men and other good shows like it tend to like have that consistency is because you do have the old guard and the new guard working in direct collaboration. It's not like they just leave each other alone and not help each other at all. You know, I think that that can be just something for TV writers rooms that, you know, it can be a little bit mysterious. Like every show is a little bit different. We don't always know the, the goings on behind the scenes, but that mm-hmm. tends to be how it works. Well, but yeah, uh, no, yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, obviously there is um, an authorship to the show with Matthew Weiner. Like you can feel his influence and stamp on the show, but you know, in a meta sort of way, uh, you, you know, like when the characters are writing ad copy, they do it like as a group, like they're just trying to make the best product they can. They're all kind of consulting all that stuff. And I mean, I don't know for sure if that's how the writer's room operates, but I imagine the way they operate bleeds into the work in some fashion or another. So that's just my hunch. Sure. Also, so about- John is sorry. I keep go ahead. Go off ahead. Before the episode. One more question about the show at large. Are we now at the point when Breaking Bad and Mad Men are running simultaneously? Or is that season three? I that was think, happening in season I think- one, I think. Well, it wasn't Matt. No, it wasn't Breaking Bad 2000, like late 2008. I'll double check that. But I think season two uh, no, is I early think, 2008. And then I think Breaking Bad 2007. I think Breaking Bad started filming after Mad Men, but I think they aired around the same time. Okay, you might be right. I just want to double check here. So, okay, Breaking Bad started airing January 20, 2008. So oh, okay. that was after season one. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think I think Michael's right that the the season one of Breaking Bad I think was like finished was already finished by the time Mad Men was airing its second season hmm. because the release date of season two and I'll double check so I don't get this wrong. Yeah, it aired July twenty seven two thousand eight, so later that year. Interesting. I just okay. Think that this that it influences the production value as well, right? Because that's when AMC is really trying to establish itself as like, we, oh, yeah. like we're HBO. Uh, like, look at us. We have two really good shows, and we're going to put everything we have into it. Yeah. HBO Lookout, basically. And uh, for good reason. I mean, these are the two shows that really, like, really kicked off AMC on, like, its its major, you know, climb to prestige television that, you know, I mean, later they would get other shows, too, like Walking Dead so, that would become, mm-hmm. like, even bigger hits. But, yeah. All right, so does so, that mean that the writer's strike had more of an influence on season two then, if that was, like, happening around 2007? Yeah, you know, so I, I think like we, we kind of talked about this last uh, last season, but I think, yeah, this is one of those shows that kind of missed a lot of the major consequences of that, because I think they really had season one in the can oh, by yeah, the that's time right. that was coming to bed, you know, and then at this point with season two, if you look at the the writers here, we do have some like new talent, but it's a lot of the same folks. Uh, so for season two, I mean, we're getting Robin Vike back again, who I think really came in as like one of the one of the strongest voices in, in my opinion for writing these episodes. But then we also have um, the, uh, the Jack Mentons are back in this. And then we have some, uh, Lisa Albert is back. And then uh, we'll, we'll talk about a couple of new ones. Like uh, Rick Cleveland uh, joins the writer's room for an episode, I think one episode, and then uh, a couple of other people uh, who haven't run on last. So yeah, it's definitely different. Like, I mean, I think that season two comes off very differently and this episode does too. And I think I think more of that has to do with the direction that Weiner wanted to take the show after he finished season one. He finished the story he wanted to tell. So 
All right. So kind of like we were discussing before, the show is now in 1962. So we ended the show in 1960, but it was like December 1960. And we're picking up 15 months later. It's Valentine's Day. And a lot of things have kind of happened over the last year. And this is something that Mad Men does a lot of over the course of the show. It does big time jumps because we're covering an entire decade in seven seasons, right? So a lot of the the seasons kind of like have huge gaps like this. And uh, one of the one of the things that has happened behind the scenes is, you know, things between Don and his hire as head of accounts, Duck, things have gotten, you know, pretty, pretty heated uh, since things settled down there. Uh, Roger is back, of course. There are a few people who don't come back as either guest stars or series regulars. So no Rachel Minkin. Uh, we don't have um, Maggie Siff's character in this, Midge. Uh, we don't have Marge from the Switchboard. Uh, but we do have other people coming in. Uh, so Lois Sadler uh, now has a more prominent role in the show. Uh, Duck is now like a series regular. Uh, Lois Adler, I forgot to say, or Sadler, I always say Adler. Uh, she addles me is the reason. She's now uh, Don's new secretary. Uh, we even see like early on in the episode that Don changes, like the locks have changed on his door. And I never really like read into it much, but it, it did make me kind of think like, oh, did he finally get his door cha- lock changed so that Pete will stop going in there? Because <laughs> um, that happened like two times in 1960. Uh, so I figured that was like a, maybe like a nice little touch there. Um, good, good, good for Don doing that. Cause yeah, he probably doesn't trust Lois too. I wouldn't. And uh, yeah. We, we get reintroduced to all of our characters again, and a lot of things have changed. I want to I talk about Betty real quick. What do we think of Betty in this episode? Because she's, she's not riding horses. She's, she's learning so much about party girls. <laughs> I love that scene so much. Uh, uh, Mike, what do you think? Or uh, Will, what do you think? Well, I, was gonna, well, I want to talk about Betty, too, but I was going to say, was there more of a symbolic thing going on with the lock? Because in season one... We had at the end, like, you know, Don and Dick were kind of fusing and becoming more open. And, like, there was a sense that, like, he was kind of being revealed. But then, obviously, you know, the it didn't matter much. And, you know, like, there was that vulnerability that kind of happened. Then he uh, was able to skirt around it. But now is he kind of being a little bit more reserved again? I was wondering if that was maybe a symbolic thing there as well. I don't know if I read that into his characterization. Inten- like, it's an intentional thing because I'm, I'm getting a little bit more of, like, We'll, we'll talk about it, but I think there's something else going on with the Don character okay. um, right now. I just, I just didn't know if that was just supposed to be like kind of a, a sight gag and a transitional sort of thing, or if that was a little bit more character symbolic as well. Sure. But sorry, but go okay, ahead. Betty. Yeah. <laughs> Betty, 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 Betty. Loves to ride her horses. <laughs> yeah, it's... um. She just... Everything she does... I, I don't know why... Well, I, I do know why... But just everything she does annoys me more. Like, I am not a fan of Eddie. Um, I feel like maybe the writers are trying to give her her independence or something. But, like, getting into the car with her manure boots, like, that's just gross. It's not the same as having kids. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. but well, you got something to say about that, Will? I just, I don't know. I, I feel bad for Peggy. Or, sorry, Betty. Jeez Louise. I feel bad for Peggy, too. But I also feel bad for betty uh in this i don't know i mean she just she just wants to you know she wants some loving and i mean you know she's trying to be the best mother she can in some respects but she also wants a little something extra and you know she, she's i not, think she wants to be more independent 
Well, that's you. Yeah, a lot of her like taking charge in this episode in ways we haven't seen before. Like she's just like, you know what, Don? Let me order this because like fishy swat. Are you? Yeah. High. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. (laughs) I agree with her there. I mean, she doesn't. She doesn't want to tell Don about her car mm -hmm. breaking down. She wants to take care of it herself. Yeah, I mean, there's something definitely going on with like age as far as like Don is obviously a lot more vulnerable about his age, about getting older. Uh, not only in the workplace, but, you know, physically, we have that scene, you know, with him at the doctor's office. He's 36. He's not a young man anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but Betty uh, weirdly wants to be older. She wants to kind of like not be like yeah. uh, uh, a kid with the playhouse. She wants to be a woman of the house. I found that kind of telling in that scene when they're having dinner before they go into their hotel room. She says, can you imagine people dating at our age, even though there's like an eight year gap, I think, between Don and Betty, right? Not eight she's years. Like, so she she was twenty eight in first season. So she's 20, about oh, okay. to be like thirty. So there's like okay. a six year gap. six year gap. But still, I mean, that's you know a considerable gap. And you know they're not like the like you're not far apart per se. But you know there is a, a gap there. But she acts like they're one the same. And I found that to be a pretty intriguing part of this episode and her character, which is interesting, right? Because you know Don struggles to get it up, and. If you actually, if you look at what happened in season one, you know, Don, Don had arousal problems with Betty when she was like too much like a kid, right? Like he struggled to like find any interest in her, wanted to end the marriage. Mm -hmm. But now she's kind of like coming into her own. She's, she's a little bit more like the independent women like Midge and Rachel. Yeah. But he's in the laundry room a little bit more, you know what I mean? Yeah, she is. (laughs) Um, But no, like she, something else has gone on with Don. You know, and, the, and I think the episode hints at like two things. Um, I, I want to talk about it, but it, was there anything else like Betty wise? I don't want to don't want to miss anything. But what was she going to give that mechanic a blowjob? She was she was ready to do it. She was just like, like I mean, that's what I'm saying. That's what she's want. ready to do it. And then just like and then I didn't feel like he was going to let her go off without doing it. But he just let her go. It definitely feel like she was implying like, I'm going to take yeah, care yeah. of you. And he's like, you could take care of me. And then I was like, see ya. Mm. You yeah, I mean, she was now. she was gonna offer some service or another, you know. I, I don't know what exactly was going to be involved, be it a uh, blowjob or what have you. But I mean, she was offering, which I mean, I, to me, that's just sad. Like it's just like you're just offering to do something or another with this, you know, mechanic that you don't know in the middle of the night, who's clearly, you know, like three year, three decades older than you. Like, you know, what's going on here? Three I mean, decades, not that old. Maybe it's a little bit older. He's, He's older than her. Late forties. Okay, sorry. Uh, he just looks, you know, significantly older than Betty. He's pretty. He's pretty rugged and masculine, though, right? Yeah, yeah. And obviously, Betty has a type, as we've seen from not only Dawn but that guy uh, that came into their house. Uh, you know, sure. she she likes a rugged. Uh, man, also, also the guy on the horse. She seems to um, have some infatuation with, even though he's uh, younger. Uh, a little bit. A little that. bit. I think I think more of like she sees him as a kid. That's decade, maybe so. But But, I mean, if we're talking about that, I mean, there's Glenn's. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Kid is Betty's fucking type. So, (laughs) 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 um, but in terms of in terms of Don, in terms of Don, so Betty is kind of presenting herself right as this like sex object, right? She has like the lingerie. She's kind of trying to, you know, clearly they've been having issues. You know, because she because when he fails to perform, she's just sort of like, I, I, I don't I we had too much to drink. I don't know where I am. You know, like 
I would just wish, I just wish you would tell me what to do, you know? And that's yeah. like, you know, brutal, brutal for Don. Um, I mean, here, I imagine. But more so than that, even she's like pretending with her friend that like, you know, nothing went on. Like she didn't even catch the Kennedy, um, the Jackie Kennedy thing on TV. Cause they were too busy having the hanky panky. <laughs> sure. And, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, she's like, I don't know, always living in this sort of playhouse where she like wants perceptions to keeping appearances yeah and i mean obviously that's true of like so many characters in this show but in this episode particularly um particularly betty so with don i think there are two implications right there's the sort of thing that i think is pretty on the nose that he is health you know like he's not young and he's not a young guy anymore you know the difficulty in the bedroom has something to do maybe you know with his physical lifestyle you know Mm. drinking too much smoking too much and it's Hurting two him packs constitutionally. Huh? Two packs a day. Wait, that's me, but anyway. <laughs> and uh, I, th- I think there's something else going on here, though. I-, I don't know if I buy it. Like, I think that's what the show is trying to message, or maybe that's what Don thinks is the problem, because, you know, he's at the doctor for his insurance physical, and it makes you kind of wonder if, you know, he thinks, like, that's one of the main reasons he wants to be there is because he doesn't know why he's struggling to perform, right? I honestly think... I think what's going on here, and you guys feel free to tell me I'm I'm a big old loser. Um, he's uninvolved. You're a big old loser. Thanks. Um, um I think he keeps <laughs> being reminded that she's his wife, and that you know he can't quite buy into the fantasy of this independence that she's presenting. And I think that since the last season, since the wheel, he's made an effort to change himself. He's not. He's apparently not having any affairs right now. He's, you know, trying to be the Don from like those photographs in the carousel. He is looking at like, you know what, instead of like what's young and new and exciting, I'm going to go back to the fifties. I'm going to try to like go back to that person I was, you know, pretend that I'm young again. Um, But instead of focusing on what's new, focusing on this new chapter of his life. And I think that disconnect between him and Betty has more to do. It's not that they're not attracted to each other. It's that he can't, he can't um, fool himself into thinking that they are like how they were when he gave her that fur coat. Like literally the Valentine from Sally is like right there on <laughs> the nightstand. And like, I think yeah. that that's killing his buzz. That's, I was just about to say that. Cause I felt like it was incidental that that Valentine from Sally was the first thing or the last thing he saw. I mean, uh, before he went to bed with, um, with Betty and yeah, I mean, obviously that, that helped him as far as like the pitch, that he was doing and you know obviously fusing work in his home life but i think he's just also yeah, thinking a lot about cells right says who but i think i mean even more than that i think he's also thinking about his own father in some way or another like i think his own no like, wonder fear... you can't <laughs> I can't forget well true but i mean like i think there is something going on where like i mean i don't think it's incidental that like he his parents were brought up in that physical they had and the idea that you know he's older than both of them and certainly i think uh you know, a few years away from where his dad was when he passed away. I think there is something psychologically happening with him. It's like, not only is he getting older, he's surpassing his parents. And he's like, and he's also, um, you know, still grieving and reeling from the death of his brother, Adam. And there is like this kind of stuff going on. I think, you know, pathologically there too, that's preventing him from performing in some respect or another. Yeah. I just think he, he may not even be able to fool himself now at this point. Like, I think he is so, he has so much disbelief in himself and what he's doing, even though he's trying so hard. It's like, it's not working. 
So he's probably blaming himself. So exactly what you're saying, John, he's wanting to go back to all these things. that's just like not working. And I think we're going to like see it fruition into just like an, a, a dramatic split of his, you know, psyche or his self. And, and, you know, that's exactly what this, what this season seems like it's setting up. One of the things I hope that happens in the season, I want to like it more. This for me has never been my favorite season. There are things though I really like about it. One of my favorite things about the season is Peggy. Peggy, I think like at what she goes through her journey in this and her mentorship with Don, I think is one of the most kind of satisfying things to watch. And this episode emblemizes it a lot. One of my least favorite things about this season is just Don himself. And I do get that listless sense of like Weiner's not sure exactly what to do with Don and is kind of experimenting with new things. And I don't, I don't know if there's that, it's kind of missing that confidence a little bit. And it's not even a complaint. It's just sort of like an observation and that kind of fits the character in this moment. And uh, it's one of those things that I hope I can appreciate a little bit more as we're watching this season because I usually just like blast through it, honestly. I also don't like Duck very much, um, but I'm I'm starting to see a little bit more of like some more interesting stuff about Duck that maybe I, I kind of, again, because I was binging the show so much, I never really slowed down with it enough to notice. Like, for example, so the, the whole thing with Don, uh, Don and Duck in this is that you know, Donald and Duck. Uh, Duck wants the the agency to hire some kids, you know, younger people, people younger than 25. Um, and it's a clear reaction to like what the name of this episode references, which is for those who think young, which is the Pepsi campaign that came mm-hmm. out in 1961. So they are addressing things that happened in 61, as you would expect. Uh, I actually watched uh, one of those ads for uh, the Pepsi ads, and it was very, very typical, you know, standard 1960s stuff. But um, there's this like idea, like kids are drinking Pepsi, you know, and, and I think like Duck is not so subtly calling to that. That's why Roger specifically is just like, for those who think young, so like, you know, addressing the Pepsi campaign without addressing it, right? It's also kind of in some small ways referencing the Lemon campaign from Volkswagen that was discussed last season. So Duck kind of has, I think, like a really valid point of view on this. And is like, you know what, we need this. Like we should, we should hire these people. But the episode kind of frames it around like, you know, Don's sort of... A, reluctance to it and you can almost sort of like see the the way that the show is sort of it does with duck what it does with pete a lot like whenever like you know bad news the worst person in the world just made a good point Mm -hmm. like that whole thing um i think they're kind of doing that with duck here and you even see uh, how roger is sort of like uh i think he agrees with duck like i don't think it's like a big thing for him to go to don and and be like yeah that's a good idea but i I, real quick i do want to say about like why things are so heated between duck and don my personal uh, opinion on this, I forget if the, if the season ever addresses it specifically, but I think it's pretty clear to me that they failed to bring in some big piece of business at one point. It could have been Kodak, in fact, uh, after the whole carousel thing. And I think they blame each other. You know, there's a whole thing where Don tells him is like, now, you, you know, if I do all this stuff for you, you know, you can't blame me for when you can't bring in Martinson's coffee. And I think clearly something kind of major went down in the last year and that's why things have soured so much uh there's specifically the thing where uh you know ken cosgrove kind of references that don has like the rope coiled around uh his neck and uh put a pin on that imagery um the idea of you know uh I'm, i won't say anything else but uh definitely a little moment there that's uh kind of hard to experience uh we can call back to to what happens with adam right because uh adam hung himself so I'm sure if Don had heard, you know, Ken Cosgrove, imagine Don is standing right behind you, you know, that whole thing. I mean, I, was I also, when you, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I, I agree with Don's character, feeling a little listless this season. And I feel like part of it is because 
he's uh, Weiner's trying to create such an intense foil with him and Duck with how headstrong Duck is, um, especially like in the workplace and what, how he thinks he should tackle accounts. So I think that definitely contributes to it. But uh, Will, what were you? Well, I was gonna say. I mean, uh, not that uh, what you're saying isn't true, but I, I on a more kind of basic level, I feel like Duck sort of represents this authority and work figure that at this moment, Don seems to be pushing away from like, as we see throughout this episode, Don seems to be avoiding work more often than not in a way that he wasn't really in the first season. And obviously, I mean, part of that is that sort of like, uh, I don't want to say like midlife crisis thing that's going on, but like there is a sort of like thing where I feel like part of what's going on with Don is also a fact that like, I feel like he didn't really have a proper childhood. So he feels like he never really had to grow up. And so, like, I mean, there's this whole thing where they, they name drop uh, Pinocchio. Um, and, like, obviously that movie is from, like, 1940, and this is, like, 1963 at this point? Or is it? Uh, it's 1962. Pinocchio came out in 1940. Right, yeah. So, I mean, it just it seemed not incidental that, that was name dropped because, like, that's, like, you know, story of a boy who wants to be, you know, like, wants to be real, wants to grow up. And I feel like that's kind of true with, uh, that has been with Don, you know, he kind of wants to be this boy who like kind of magically grows up to be like a real you know a real boy and it never really happened properly and he's still putting on appearances as we mentioned the facade's kind of breaking i feel like with work he's you know it's i don't know it's just something you know i mean i I, what was the name of the book that he was reading that he saw the guy at the bar i have it Uh, right here i guess in an emergency book of poems by frank o'hara published in 1957 one of my favorite books of poetry It, it truly is wonderful um Highly, highly recommend. Read it. Read it sure. something. Pick one. For grace after a party, you do not always know what I am feeling. Last night in the warm spring air, while I was blazing my tirade against someone who doesn't interest me, it was love for you that set me afire. And isn't it odd, for in rooms full of strangers, my most tender feelings writhe and bear the fruit of screaming. Put out your hand. Isn't there an ashtray suddenly there, beside the bed? And someone you love enters the room and says, wouldn't you like the eggs a little different today? And when they arrive, they are just plain scrambled eggs and the warm weather is holding. So Frank O'Hara wrote this stuff just like in his everyday life. It's very much like uh, Patterson. Um, in fact, I think Patterson was like one of the major, I think Patterson's, one of Ma- Patterson's major inspirations was uh, poets like Frank O'Hara. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about the the Jim Jarmusch movie. The Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, it's wonderful. And I, I think... um. There's something too, you know, the whole thing with Don where he's like, uh, uh, oh, I, real quick, I got to say about the Pinocchio thing. I, I can't help but like, but for me, the Pinocchio thing really came with Pete in this episode, like eating the chocolates and watching cartoons. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, everyone's having the sex or trying to have the sex. He's just, yeah, he doesn't want to have the kids. chocolate. He's... Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's still, I mean, again, like, I mean, kind of similar weirdly to Don, he's still a kid at heart. And like, I mean, how can he have a kid? When he's still a kid himself, though, mm-hmm. I mean, ir- obviously the irony there is that he's already fathered a child with Peggy, uh, you know, yeah. an, act- an actual like the youngest person in the office, but is just treated as older than she already is. Yeah, they're like, they're- oh, you don't count. Right. There's a lot of disrespect at Peggy in this. I, I got to say, though, I do hate it when I get chocolates that don't have the diagram and let me know what the chocolates are. So I really felt for Pete in that moment. Oh, my gosh. Um, but yeah, no, um, meditations in an emergency, I think, yeah. So that's, I, I think that this book of poetry is a great reference. You know, if you wanted to read something while watching season two, uh, this is definitely, you know, something I think what, I think the last episode is called meditations in an emergency. 
and it very does, much does meditating becomes does it become big to dawn? I don't remember really anything else you know, related to meditating. I think I think in general, I mean, it's clear to me that Weiner, you know, huge fan of the book because I think a lot of the characterization of Don post season one is based around this book of poetry, um, particularly when it comes to like the way that Don just like lives his daily life, like going around making observations and you know uh, reflecting on things later through advertising, like advertising his poetry in some ways. So it's it's so funny, you know, when he gets like pigeonholed in the the bar where the guy is just like, I don't think he would like it. And, you know, and it's like, it's kind of calling back to hobo code, right? Where like, he is like, oh, I'm not one of the bohemians, you know, I could, you know, when I'm wearing, especially when I'm wearing this suit. So, but, uh, anyway, what I was going to say before is that like, I mean, obviously like Pinocchio is a story about a boy who, uh, learns lessons about life just kind of through everyday circumstances. And it seems like, as you're mentioning Don, someone who the tragedy and kind of flaw of him is that like, he doesn't really want to like, like he finds work in like the everyday moments, like you're saying. But he also is like trying to avoid work in this scenario, but like he never kind of fully turn it off. He like he has to constantly feel like he's working in some way or another, but he's also kind of avoiding those responsibilities. But yeah, he finds these little things, these meditations, as it were, that kind of indirectly and both directly uh, help him out in this episode. Yeah, I mean, the meditation of like the I love you, daddy from Sally is what becomes instrumental in the pitch. Uh, you're gonna say, Mike? I just like to imagine Weiner like in between, you know, season one and two. Like he's having that crisis, not knowing to do with Don. He's having an emergency, so he just opens up this like he 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 re- he reads the poetry book, and he, he's just like, "I got it! By yeah. golly, I got it!" Don literally, I I just opened up to a random page, by the way. Like I wasn't preparing that, um, and literally the whole thing about like scrambled eggs. It's just scrambled eggs and like Don eating like that dish for Bobby. You know, there's a lot of like people eating each other's food in this episode, by the way. <laughs> you know, like. Uh, you know, Don eating at the bar and then um, the whole thing where like he's eating the food that Betty orders, he's eating Bobby's food. And I, have, I do love on, it I when they actually eat on screen, because obviously from a production value, that's like the no, no, right. You always fucking fake eating your food because you're going to have to do it a billion times. So yeah, whenever yeah, I see them actually swallow. going for it, I'm like, damn, you go, you go, John Ham. <laughs> All right. And, uh, well, um, I was just going to say about poetry, like it's kind of fitting, like so we mentioned with um, like Sopranos, like this is a successor and the later seasons of Sopranos kind of relied a lot on poetry to kind of aid them and find inspiration. Like I think the, what's the guy's name? Um, uh, William Butler Yeats, I think his name, like the second coming poem was like a big inspiration. for Gabagool. Yeah, Gabba, yeah, the big poem Gabagool became a huge inspiration for the later seasons of Sopranos. And so, I don't know, I mean, I just think that that's something that kind of infuse itself from Sopranos into this this new season, I guess, or the early seasons of Sopranos, or of Mad Men. I think that's a great segue into one of the linchpins of the episode. I mean, this episode has a lot of endings, you know? There's the whole thing in the elevator, and then there's a the whole thing where, you know, Don sends the package off to somebody we don't know yet. Uh, there's, like, a nice little tag, you know, at the end, be like, what's going on, <laughs> you know? Um, there's a kind of, like, quasi-reveal that Don isn't having an affair. He's He just goes home and, like, hangs out with his kid, which is, like, the biggest twist of the series so far. Um, but before all that, uh, there is the the pitch. Or it's kind of like a brainstorm session more than anything. Like It kind of starts as like a little pitch between um, Peggy and Don. Um, you know, Sal is there too. Uh, we, we can't forget that Sal has a new boo. He got married in the intervening year. And so that was his wife. husband. <laughs> you know? Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I was making sure I heard that right because I was just like, I thought they said 
wife, but yeah, it was just like, I was oh, yeah, yeah. sure. But obviously, you know, okay. there's one moment with uh, his wife. He's just like, where's John F. Kennedy? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think people will hate her. <laughs> Who is having more sex? Pete, Sal, <laughs> or Don? <laughs> None of the above. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And why is it still Roger? <laughs> right yeah it's and joan 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 gets uh you know some some action in this episode uh i mean is her, I'll, right? s- I'll say don because he's a bit masturbatory oh wow okay mm. so sorry was that too word? i don't know oh boy i'm so gonna anyway, google that word right now anyway. <laughs> go to google images mike um so there's the big there's the big thing where Peggy comes with Sal uh, to Don to try to like redo the Mohawk campaign because we didn't talk about it before. But earlier in the episode, Don, you know, is super late to that meeting where they have all the pitches for Mohawk Airlines. And, you know, Paul Kinsey kind of like stumbles uh, out the door. He goes first, you know, stumbles out the gate, right? Terminal. And he's just like, there's a new chief in the sky. And since I know you wouldn't like that, uh, he quickly goes to like, we've got Boston surrounded. And he's like, I got more Indian puns. And Don's like, stop writing for other writers. You know, you have to write for people who don't have a sense of humor. I've literally used that line before in advertising where I've just been like, like, I get it. Like, it's funny. Like somebody will bring something to me and it's just like an idea. And I'm like, this is for like two people. And it's like, those people are going to love it. Everybody else, you're just going to lose them. They're not going to get it. Um, I, I've dealt with that when editing film reviews, like people will put like major, like one of the main themes of a film review will be this like very niche thing. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but it doesn't work. Um, will Ashton, I mean, no, 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 never happened with you, Will. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. I was going to say, I thought that would be a note that you got early on in life would be like you, mm-hmm. you make all these quips and puns and jokes. Oh yeah. And very bits. early in my career. You know, everybody does. Everybody's kind of like. Although where I work, like puns are almost never, you know, a thing. But when they are, yeah, they get shot down pretty fast. But um, then, you know, Peggy, Peggy's like under Dale at this point, right? Um, and Dale is kind of like, we haven't seen him, I don't think, since like that second episode of the last season. I don't remember when we saw him last. I think was, I vaguely remember him. Or the only time I really remember him is when they do like the right guard, like deodorant spray. And I think he's in the room where they like tackle Ken. But since then, I think he's just been probably doing some other show and uh he's back though and he's like super checked out i don't think he's on for you know a job because peggy just totally outshines him um peggy outshines everybody in this episode she's eager you know in that in that whole like scene in uh for the first mohawk pitch she's just like we could do that and then we could you know write something and that would work you know she's like she's like if advertising age was a person like she, and we see her reading advertising age in the beginning of the episode when they play the let's do the twist again and um yeah, I, I think that this is why I love Peggy in this season is because like it's a little cringe, but it's also just it's just wonderful to see her coming into her own, enjoying her job, having way more agency at this agency. Uh, I like it a lot. And then it culminates, of course, with how she is able to get that mentorship with Dawn after a whole episode where everyone's been shitting on her. You know, like they don't the guys don't invite her to the meeting. They speculate about her being at a fat farm and knocking Dawn up you know, behind her back. They try to get her to do things like go get more glasses, go tell Don that, you know, we're going to, or go see if Don is around. Oh, he won't yell at her. Just treating her like a kid, like a woman who doesn't have any power, like equality with them. She's the one who gets the mentorship with Don. Don is the one who sees something in her. And like Sal, you know, you kind of get the sense from Sal where he's just like, 
am I interrupting something? It's just like, are you father and daughter? <laughs> like, it's very, uh, it's a very charged scene, and I love it so much. Uh, what do, what do you guys think of the? What did you bring me, Daddy? She says I, in such a weird I just, <laughs> I keep thinking about like the, the season one moments where they're all in Pete's office, and the, they're all describing their relationship with Don, and it's all centered around does he like me, and well, you, you know, I you don't see me working for it, but I am working for it. That's not Peggy's concern. Peggy's concern is how the fuck can we do good advertising, you know? And so I think that just genuine passion and like not maybe naivety um, and like distaste for the office politics is just what helps her actually hone in on her craft. And that's why Don actually wants to help her. And that's why he's, you know, actually putting his effort into it because it's coming from such a genuine place and it's so clear that that's what it is. Yeah, and then there's also like that one scene where they're um, meeting outside of um, the office at that table, and they're like trying, like they're scoping out the new talent or the younger people at least that are coming into it. And they're like these like kind of judgmental like older brothers, just like who's going, who is this, you know, who's this kid trying to win dad's affection or whatever? And they're, you know, uh, murmuring and disgruntled, and yeah. They're always outside looking in. Peggy, as you mentioned, is the only one that gets the that moment inside yeah, the office with Don. While they're doing that, you know, she's working, right? Right. She's like that counter too, to like what uh, Mike was saying before about how like, or I think you will were saying too, like how Don, Don isn't working. He won't grow up. He won't, you know. Mm-hmm. But also with the the lock too, like he's closing people yeah. off, and yeah, he's close. He doesn't have an open door policy anymore <laughs> for good reason. People were stealing his stuff, but no, uh, Peggy. Peggy comes in with that pitch, and I think. Um, she stands up to Don like she has like an attitude because I think, yeah, like Mike is saying, like she doesn't care if he likes her. She cares about the idea. She And obviously like, the season's going to continue challenging that. And like, you know, she's going to be like learning from Don in ways that I don't think she expects. But, you know, when she's just sort of like, that's I think it's sentimental. And like, you know, Sal is just like, you want to die? Like Don's going to stab you. And, and he's just like, no, she's right. But then he just like he gently, constructively eviscerates her. But in a way that I think like she respects, like she's just like, this is what I'm here for. I want to learn. I want to be like called out on my shit. And Don is sort of like, I want somebody to challenge me, to stand up to me. That's the thing that like Paul would never do. You know, he's just going to go on to get along. Dale's, he's asleep. You know, he's, where is he? He's sick that day, even though they know that they were supposed to deliver that day. So I think it's just like, it's one of those things where the this, this show really comes into its own for me, at least. I do yeah. also think part of it is sorry. Well, I do think a part of it also though is a little bit of Don's ego because he's having such a hard time reestablishing his persona of Don Draper that he is getting satisfaction in molding, you know, you know, part of himself within Peggy, right? Having power over the youth. Exactly. Yeah, she's only 22. She's feeling 22. But uh, yeah, so then the the pitch itself is just sort of, um, you know, it starts with like, where are you going? And he's just like, where are you going? <laughs> I love Don so much in that, that scene. But, um, you know, he has that whole spiel, you know, of like, you are the product, you know, and like, this is what actually sells things. And, you know, the whole like sex sells thing. I've, I've definitely, you know, again, I know I promised you guys I would call back to my advertising career as much as possible, but I've been on both sides of this. I've been the Peggy, I've been the Don. And, you know, more recent years I've been the Don in the situation where somebody somebody will come to me and just be, you know, like 
I don't think this works or, you know, I don't think I don't believe in this or they don't believe in something that like I've advocated for. And I've had to like wax philosophical a bit. A lot of it's bullshit, but <laughs> there is like something to that flow, you know, that's sort of just like having to defend yourself articulately almost through poetic delivery. And I, that's why I love that, you know, whenever the show weaves in poetry, because I think there is like a poetry to advertise and there is like a sort of like, you know, a half, not, not half measure or half assery of it, but it's just sort of like the, the deliberate, like editing out of ideas. Like when you, you know, try to present your case and like simplifying it down to like raw emotion, that's kind of like what poetry is. And there's something very like poetic about the best kinds of advertising, even though advertising is soulless. Um, but yeah, that's my little insight. Good. Do you think that like advertising in the modern age has become less about like the observation of the human experience that like I would say all good copy really is and like a little bit more to focus on like focus groups and like statistics just to feed the fucking burning fire of capitalism? I think that's more in like content creation and content marketing these days. I think um I think where we see a lot of the sort of pointed observational poetic advertising weirdly enough and I hate to say this it comes into the the things that people are creating to go viral. Uh, that is where I think that that's existing right now. It's not in billboards, it's not like it's not even on like online ads or anything. All of that stuff has just become noise, but I think like the real sort of like the the youths are coming in to make TikTok videos that are ads, but you don't know their ads. It's stuff like that. And it's like figuring out people are in conversations right now in boardrooms who are like, how do we get people to buy this pillow? You know, we're going to Nathan Fielder it. We're going to create something out of nothing. We're going to create an internet thing out of nothing, out of whole cloth, and it's going to eventually lead to money for us. I, I did see uh, an advertisement and I just thought it was just it, it felt so different from exactly what you're saying, I guess, with, with TikTok, you don't know our ads. But uh, I think we, it's, it's okay. So I saw this Nike ad the other day, um, just after someone had broke a speed record. And it was just a close up of his face. And the copy is the human race just got faster. And that was like the first time in a long time I read something. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, that's good. This is great. This is really yeah. good. It, it, anyways, felt like yeah, you don't get that a lot these days, right? I was at the an airport in Paris um, when we were on our honeymoon, and uh, you know, my wife and I were sitting there, and we were kind of just like looking at, you know, we we're like waiting for our food and everything. And I looked over at the M and M's ad. It's just like this big poster thing, and I was like, I asked her, I was just like, what is like, what are they trying to do there? It was something along the lines of like one fun for all, all for fun, something like that. And I was just kind of like, you know. What brought that line about? Because that that's a line that feels very much like the fifth thing on the list that they didn't really want, but it was like the safe version. And uh, yeah, anyway, that's a whole tangent. We don't have to dissect an M&M's ad right now. Anyway, I like that talk, though. I like the advertising talk. It's fun. <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry, Will. I know it's a little, it's a little extra. Yeah, although, I mean, uh, not probably as profound as uh, what the art you guys were talking about, but... Um, so a piece of marketing that I appreciated recently that ties to baseball, uh, Mike, uh, did you see the smile advertisements that they've been doing at these baseball fields where they get the actors from the New oh, yeah, that was pretty fun. smile and they have them smiling in direct, uh, 
lineage to the camera and they, you, they don't, you know, say like smile in theaters now, but you see these actors like what's going on there. And that's like, obviously like what you're kind of talking about, it's like trying to create a viral moment related to the film, but it's also subtle enough yeah. to where it doesn't feel like I'm being advertised. And so it's like, Oh, you know, I thought that was I neat. It comes out of that anxiety, right. Of like our real lives are so dominated by the content we consume so that like when something like that can creep into a moment you weren't expecting, that's when it's most effective. All right. Um, we've covered a lot. Was there anything else? I mean, we, we talked about Betty, we talked about Peggy. We talked about what's going on with Don and Duck. Um, there is that whole thing where, you know, Joan has a moment with Roger and, she, you know, she's obviously dating somebody now, a, a doctor. Roger insists is Jewish. You know, Roger. And uh, Joan, Joan spends a lot of this episode being like, I don't know where to put the Xerox machine, this machine that's going to replace pretty much all the jobs that these women have. Uh, she eventually puts it in Peggy's office. And I took it as, I, I was curious what you guys thought of this. I took it as like her punishing Peggy for, you know, scolding uh, Lois. Is that how you, t- you, that's how you took it, Mike? Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I think there's probably a little bit of off camera. Um, I, I would assume some off camera, you know, uh, in the, in the past year as, as Peggy has become, you know, one of the, you know, frankly, one of the boys in the office, a little bit above her. Um, there's a little bit of resentment probably built in there. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, in addition to that, I just felt like it was pretty much still the resentment that she had from the end of season one, as far as Peggy having her own office and some, you know, she's trying to limit that space as much as possible, but yeah. Sure. Um, there's also sort of like, a there's this thing with Carla toward the end that I didn't want to miss where Carla is coming back from season one and, you know, she's the, the main nanny for Bobby and Sally. And, there's a point where like Don is just like, I'm gonna drive you to the station. And she like looks at his drink. Like he's like literally just pouring whiskey into a glass. And she's just like, No thanks. I like the fresh air. <laughs> so there's like clearly like a sort of uh she keeps her distance, you know, from the drapers a bit, uh, in a very smart survival way. Uh, because yeah, that's an accident waiting to happen. And uh that, that's about all I had. I mean, we had the whole Jackie Kennedy thing, the White House tour. Um, kind of merging into this episode's events, which I thought was fun. That was just so hard to watch just with everything that's happening on TikTok with Jackie Kennedy currently. It just uh, was a melding of different cultural What's happening on TikTok with Jackie Kennedy? Uh, everybody, like the whole joke of Jackie Kennedy is that she um, uh, fucking likes to eat metal um, or like tin cans. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's just a bunch of like Jackie Kennedy what? going like, nah, nah, nah. I'm like, oh yeah, just literally go to TikTok and search. You've Jack you've Jack lost me, Michael Overholz. I gotta look this up. Uh, I mean, I have no idea what hey, talking about. Well, listen to look. the youth, John. That's I'm that. I was yeah, about, I can't hey. I can't do it. They're drinking Pepsi. I, I'm drinking coffee. I, John, I was about to say, yeah, we're the older ones. Mike's the youngest kid. You know, we gotta listen well, to the true. kids. This is what they're into now. I guess uh, clearly, clearly. <laughs> re, re, uh, wait, Will, how old are you? I'm 29. Okay, so it's not. We're not. We're not too far. I know, yeah, but you're still the youngest John's of the three. John's the old head. Yeah, yeah you're the one. Seven. You're getting close to, be, to the 36 there. I'm being. I'm about to turn 32 in a couple of weeks. So yeah. there you go. But uh, yeah, I, I'm almost done with my Baskin Robbins age. I, um, but yeah, did oh, you guys have anything oh, okay. else in uh, the episode? You got something? No, no, I, I was trying to get that pun because I don't eat ice cream, but then it's like 32 flavors. I get it. Uh, 31 flavors that's 30, 31 no flavors, wonder so. you, you clearly don't yeah i don't know i mean i did relate to the whole thing where it's like the youths aren't drinking coffee anymore they're drinking pepsi because i don't drink coffee i was like yeah that's true but you i'm don't not drink coffee at all 
No, I don't drink that coffee. That is not true. Fuck that shit. No, I hate coffee. I despise coffee. No, this is Wait, not so then joke. what do you drink? Do you drink tea? Like some kind right of now, poet? This is right now, this is iced tea. I don't know if okay. you can see it in my cup. Uh, oh, hey, my parents have those cups. Mike, I have a question for uh, you. Right? A question that Will would never answer um, out of protest. But Yeah, sure. Baskin Robbins <laughs> or Cold Stone? Oh, what's the occasion? Is it? Is it you're just on the way 100 home? 100 degrees out. 100 degrees out, middle of the day. Let's say it's like 4 or 5 o'clock. You know, you didn't you, you missed lunch or something, but you don't want to eat like a full meal or you just want a little treat for you. Yep, Baskin Robbins, for sure. That absolutely is the recipe for that. Cold Stone? Okay. Cold Stone is a, um, it's like an event ice cream for me. Like, oh man, we just got out of a great movie. You're like, oh, what a fun day on the boat. What an awesome baseball Let's, game, big dumper. Yeah, it, it's very, it's very extra. Um, All right, we can, we can go back Cold to Stone the has. episode because Will, Will literally stepped away at the huffing and puffing because he hates ice cream so much. And he's like, forget Who this ice cream ice talk. cream? I don't know. People from Pittsburgh are fucking weird, dude. Will, Will's trying to like yell at us, but he's, he's on mute. He doesn't even know it. Sorry, yeah. Uh, no, I was checking my phone. I was like, oh, you guys are talking ice cream. I have uh, nothing to contribute to this whole thing. But <laughs> yes, I yes. mean, I will uh, I will step to my city's defense. Certainly my neuroses and eccentricities have little to do with the city as far as ice cream and coffee are concerned. Okay. But um, yeah. But let's let's finish out our convo on Mad Men. And uh, did, I, did you guys have anything else? Go ahead. I, I do actually. I, I'm curious. Will. Who at this point? Because obviously John and I know. Who do okay. you think Don sent the book to? Well, I was just about to ask. Yeah, I mean that's um, so that's a mystery. Okay, I, I didn't know if that was supposed to be kind of a, a closed ambiguity. That, that that's something that's going to be tied up later. Because he writes on the season. note like it made me think of you. So like right, yeah, it's no, not I know. Stranger, yeah. But I mean, other shows have certainly, and even Mad Men have in the past, like you know, done things like this and not really tied them up. So I didn't know if that was going to be resolved later on, or if that was something you were just supposed to assume. I mean, I feel I like do Rachel taking a while okay, uh, for them to tie it up. But yeah, they do tie it up. I mean, Rachel, I guess, makes the most sense. But I don't know. I mean, that it, it seems a little too obvious for what's going on. Um, what's Maggie Siv's character? What's her name? Midge. Uh, Midge. I'm going to say Midge. Okay, so that's your guess. Yeah. And then uh, we'll have to revisit that's this when we find out. I will just um, say, I think that's what yeah. makes this show so good too. Is that like, right? It it, you do, it definitely gives you, makes you feel like you can guess like who it is. Um, I don't know. It's just it's good writing, and we we definitely should, like just remember this conversation. We'll talk. All right, all right. Um, I guess I was going to ask about the elevator thing. I mean, the clear thing about like when Don's in the elevator and the guys are being like total, you know, jagoffs, and like the woman is clearly uncomfortable, and you know, there's a whole thing where he's like, take your hat off, you know, and. You know, it's calling again back to like he wants, you know, that, that sort of like gentlemanly sort of thing. I was curious though, what you think the function of is of the scene is, you know, is it Don just continuing to rebel against the younger generation? Is it sort of showing that like, you know, there, Don has a point to this approach to life that it's not always like bad. And so he's like, maybe Weiner's trying to like avoid making it a black and white thing. Uh, what Did you guys have a, any observation on that before we close this out? I got nothing. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I I think it's supposed to emphasize both Don's like against rebellion against the youth, but also that the youth like in Don's defense do suck a little. Um, like they're just not old enough to understand how rude they're being. Um, which is, but I mean, every generation has it, right? Every generation is going to look at the one 
behind it. I think the same thing of Gen Z all the time and just think like, oh, you, you just don't get it. You're not old enough. You don't have the experience. Like you don't understand how that what you're doing right now is just like, like so rude uh, or something. But uh, yeah, just highlighting that. It happens in every generation. I mean, in the 60s, it's happening now. Mm-hmm. I think in some respect or another, Don is a man of principles. And even though he does sort of uh, deplorable behavior, uh, behind closed doors, I think he is someone who, you know, wants to respect social norms. He believes that, you know, when there's a lady present and you're in an elevator, you take your hat off and you, you know, don't talk about ladies underwear and other, you know, inappropriate things with some woman that you don't know. So I think, yeah, he just, I think obviously he's rebelling against the youth. I think he's kind of pushing against his own sort of insecurities about the age. But he's also just like, come on, guys, there's a time and a place for this kind of conversation. And it's not in this elevator with this nice lady in front of us. So, sure. I think. Yeah, we, we didn't really touch on um, the whole thing with the two guys, the two young guys, you know, one of them wearing that big sweater and that wonderful, oh, you, the, you know, Chris Evans from Knives Out sweater. Um, uh, yeah. Those guys seem fun. They had a nice little moment. Yeah. I mean, I did. I, I thought Don made a good point that a good question to ask during a job interview is Have you ever, you been, ever been fired? fired? <laughs> Which is a weird thing uh, to ask somebody who's like as young as they are because it's like, right. you know, it's like, we don't want people to know we're meeting. You know, it's like, ooh, okay, Mr. Hot yeah. Commodity, all right. Yeah. But, also, uh, I was going to say, uh, one of the guys in the elevator is Scott MacArthur, who is one of the main antagonists on the Righteous Gemstones, which I know is a show that John hasn't watched, but I don't know if... Have you watched Righteous Gemstones, Mike? I love the Righteous It's such Gemstones. a good show. Yes. Yeah. I am shocked I couldn't get into John it. I tried. How couldn't you? you, you it's way God, too... With- with your mm. background, yeah, I know, okay. that's the thing. That's why we'll recommend it. Yeah, that's I, what I said to John. I said the same thing, Mike. It rings false to me. I don't know. You no, okay. okay. Here's the thing. Unless, as far as what you told me, you just said you couldn't get past the language, which is that's I mean, what sorry, I'm saying. That, is like it yeah. rings false. Like I don't know. It's just it's just not that world to me. Like I think that that world there's something very it's, delicate about it, and I think your show is just so out there about it. It's like so I mean, over the top, yeah. and I'm just like ah. Did you did you enjoy the eyes of Tammy Faye? Yeah, I think the eyes of Tammy Faye kind of nailed it because mm. I think specifically with the, the depiction of Falwell, I think I think Vincent D'Onofrio was spot on because like I knew him in yeah. person, and like right. I think like that to me is like that balance of like there's something very absurd about this whole thing, but it's not always absurd. And I don't know, Righteous Gemstones. I just I don't know. I, I only gave it one episode a chance, so I don't. Know I, well, okay, well you definitely need to watch more than that because I, I will say most standing. McBride shows they do kind of take a little while to get their rhythm. I mean, certainly that was the case with Eastbound Down and Vice Principals before this. But I will say, I mean, I mean, I, I thought Isaac Tommy Faye was fine, um, and I'm I'm not going to disparage uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's performance in that film. But I feel like watching that film and watching Hong for Jesus Save Your Soul at both times, just like man, if Righteous Gemstones didn't come out, I probably would respect these movies more. But we have Righteous Gemstones, and this show is just knocking both of them out of the water. Welcome back to Righteous Gemstones Men, the <laughs> weekly show where we talk about a show. <laughs> um, okay, I think that should do it then for this episode of Mad Men Men. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about Flight One, which I'm very curious, Will, if you remember anything from this episode, but we'll have to wait and see because, uh, yeah, you, you don't think you saw it? I Yeah, I can say with certainty I've not watched at least a full episode. This is it. We're kind of getting in. We're get, we're getting in uncharted territory. You know, uh, look out! Look out for Will Ashton. We got him surrounded. So this is it. Yeah, I'm getting on the plane and traveling places anew.
Yep, that's right. Leaving leaving the city of uh, you know knowing yep. things behind you. But yep. uh, all right, we'll be back next week. Thank you all for listening. This has been Mad Men Men. <laughs>